You're listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner Podcast with your host, Andy Plymer. For someone to explain. Bringing you up-to-date coaching concepts from the world of rugby. Sharing ideas to make the game better. Alright, welcome to episode number three of the Rugby Coaches Corner Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Plymer, and I'm joined today... Uh, with Stuart Armstrong. Stuart's a talent development specialist, a talent coach, and a professional coach developer, and is the current player pathways manager for the RFU. He is a sports science graduate from the University of Wales and has worked in sports development for the past 15 years. As well as rugby, Stuart has been involved with hockey, cricket, and golf, with a lot of those being at the elite level. And you can even find him on weekends coaching under-8s hockey and under-9s cricket, where his goal, as he puts it, is to create an amazing sports experience. So I'm, uh, I'm stoked to have him on the show. Uh, so welcome, Stuart. Hi, Andrew. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks, uh, thanks for joining us. No, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Great, great. So tell us a little bit about your backstory, about how you um, ended up in the, the role as uh, Player Pathway Manager for the RFU. It's... Uh... It's a as as most uh, difficult journeys are. You know, it's a pretty roundabout way of arriving here. I definitely wouldn't have, if you'd asked me however many years ago when I started out in the world of work. Um, you know, if I'd been working for the RFU, I probably would have would have laughed at you. You know, I uh, I'm, I'm like a lot of kids actually. I probably probably part of the reason I'm in in the role that I am. Um, you know, I'm one of those kids who was kind of, you know, de- developed fairly late, played rugby as a child, you know, played through school and then, you know, everybody else grew real fast and I was uh, I was a little bit left behind and got involved with a few other different sports, just trying different things, you know, became a bit of a jack of all trades. Yeah. Uh, then I went on and did a sports science degree. Um, the art teacher caught me on the uh, on the sports field for the 15th time and said, I think you should have a career in sport. Turned out to be pretty good advice. Yeah. Yep, sure. uh, and so I ended up working, uh, did a sports degree and then worked in sports development for a number of years. Just, uh, you know, just getting across different sports, lots of participation activity just locally where I was living. Uh, and then I started working working in golf, um, doing children's golf. We launched a program called Tri Golf, um, which yep. is kind of like a junior version of golf designed to play in a in a small school environment inside safe and uh, it's a pretty great you know it's a pretty good program i yeah. kind of wish i wish i had the uh wish i had the patent on it it goes in got about a million children a year playing that game so i'm oh, pretty wow. proud of that um and then i moved on and i started working in talent development in golf and i did five years then working in, in the performance environment or you know working with kind of players coming through sort of mid adolescence and i guess from then on my career's all been all been talent development working with kind of uh, you know that kind of adolescent adolescent player in a number of different environments. So I moved from golf. I started work, working in um, did a bit of stuff in the private sector, and then I worked for uh, Sports Coach UK, working with fifteen different sports on their path, talent pathways, uh, developing talent coaches um, across uh, the whole landscape. And then that role really brought me across to rugby, just bringing that kind of knowledge from the different sports and the background I've got, and, and, and sort of bringing that into the role that I now have with uh, within rugby. Oh, that's great, and um, there's no no questioning the passion um, for sports and, and talent development, and I think that's reflected today with the interview. This is actually, for the listeners, this is actually the second time we've done the interview. Uh, Stuart and I did one a little while back, and uh, the, the the internet wasn't that gr- kind to us that day, and Stuart's been kind enough to, to go again, so uh, thanks, thanks a bunch for that. 
no problem at all. Just installed a, just installed an upgraded uh, upgraded internet capacity as well. So hopefully it should be a lot better. Perfect. No, it's going well so far. So, so with the crossover for sports, it must be do you, from a, from a coaching perspective. Do you see a lot of uh, similarities in, for example, someone coaching um, a golf swing to someone coaching uh, someone kicking for points or something like that? Uh, there's definitely some similarities. In fact, the similarities between uh, golf and kicking. I was actually talking recently with uh, uh, our under twenties coach John Callard, who's uh, specialises in kicking as well. And uh, the, we were actually talking about some of the the parallels between uh, the golf swing and kicking and all those sorts of things. And there's definitely some crossover there. But the sports are very different in the sense that a game like golf's obviously much more of a it's not it's not quite a closed skill but it's more closed skill than something that's kind of much more dynamic than a you know like a rugby field where it's kind of multiple decisions to be made you know in the blink of an eye so um there is definitely differences in sort of coaching methodologies and and that's the same for example if you're working with say canoeing um or rowing or something like that in comparison to say cricket or football they they are quite different in terms of the coaching challenges and the needs of those coaches are slightly different however um, what is what is the same, and certainly the challenges that they face are all pretty much the same. And so, what I found was we we launched a program while I was at Sports Coach, which was called the Talent Coach Breakfast Clubs, where we brought coaches from different sports together to share. What was really interesting was how they all had the same sorts of challenges. Right. L- largely, they were they were under resourced, yeah. so um, most of them had like you know kind of found themselves in the talent work by by their own their own development really kind of through trial and error so there was uh, some in- interesting stuff there and it was all then really interesting as well to see say for example like the hockey coaches getting the sprints guy you know in the corner and kind of grilling him for information about how to make their athletes faster so it's uh, really good to watch yeah that's great great so so how would you describe your current role then with the and the projects that you're you're managing with the rfu I, i've got a kind of it's kind of a unique role really um I'm not sure initially it was necessarily designed to be like this, but it's kind of ended up like this where I've kind of got a, we've got two kind of major challenges, I suppose, in the sport. Um, uh, One is, uh, is kind of helping, you know, that young player really kind of take the next steps and really develop as a, uh, you know, as a, as a, as a rugby player. The other one is um, keeping hold of them. Um, What we, what we find is, they have a journey, you know, they either start quite early, the, you know, the research we did, they start quite early, they play for a long time, and then kind of by the time they, they reach 16, they they struggle, I think, and maybe start to look for other things to do. They kind of almost become a bit jaded by yeah. their, their experiences. The other one is maybe they played in a school environment um, for quite some time, and then they get to a stage where they... Uh, they're finding themselves, you know, they, they leave the school environment, they go to university, they've got a load of other things that they can do, and we, we definitely lose them there. So we, we see a quite a significant drop-off in participation terms at 16 and 18. So the, the job I have really is to combine talent development with retention. So okay. we're, I'm actually kind of essentially testing a hypothesis uh, on a national scale with 5,000 athletes to yeah. to basically show that you can do a talent development and you can really improve uh, the abilities of these players and in so doing you keep more of them in the game. Yeah. So so your my understanding is you're, you're overseeing 5,000 athletes um, across the country and you're that's like the bottom of the pyramid that you're funneling towards high performance. Um, 
That sounds like a, a massive undertaking. It, it, yeah, it's the first rung of, our, of what we call our talent pathway. Yep. Um, so at 13, we don't, we don't do any talent work before then. Yep. Um, it's very much focused on participation. And then at 13, it, you know, they sort of take their first steps, and it's very much that kind of transition point. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of about improvement and development without necessarily getting too selective. We, we definitely wanted to keep the pathway as broad as we possibly could for as long as we possibly could. So uh, a number of years ago, before I took on this role, that, that number would have been a lot smaller, would have been about maybe 1,500. Okay. And so it obviously got very narrow very quick. And surprise, you know, surprise, surprise, you saw a lot of kids who were, you know, bigger or older or whatever. So, you know, now by having 5,000 in the program, you can – keep players who are slightly less developed in there and you can see how they develop also you can equalize the opportunity you know previously a lot of the kids who came through were coming from that prep school environment because they just had more exposure so what we're doing now is we've got kids in from state schools we've got a really great state school program called all schools and we're seeing kids feed into that who are pretty raw really but they've got like for example you know great athleticism and a great attitude so you know you can develop the skills uh, you know, given the right environment. And so that's kind of what it's about. We we create the environment for them to develop and to sort of give more opportunities for, for those those kids who've got something, a little spark, and then help them come through. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, and it, sa- it sounds like it'll definitely pay dividends. I think we, from from just looking at talent development in, in rugby, I think a lot, of, a lot of kids are let go way too early. And I know... Um, I remember reading in uh, online Scott Fardy, the current six for Australia. He he was missed by all 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 pathways in Australia. Ended up playing in Japan, and then came back and is now the incumbent six uh, for the Wallabies. And I know that was a bit of a uh, quite the bugbear for him. Um, do do you, are you seeing things like that where where the younger the, the smaller kid who's a hard worker is you know there's an overtaking period at some stage from the from the bigger kid? Yeah, the the data really supports that actually um we've got right. some d- d- data within rugby that that some research that's sort of emerging out of one of our own academies actually that's that supports that in a big way and and you can see it actually in some of the data from other sports as well where you see the at the intake the early intake you see you know essentially relatively old children mm-hmm. uh being picked up but then mm-hmm. by the time they reach sort of you know full maturity and international status then that's almost like gone the other side so you're seeing more of the kind of relatively young sort of quarter three quarter four kids yeah. sorry kids you know um players who are who are coming through and and one of the uh hypotheses that that is coming out from that research is actually those relatively young kids develop grit you know they develop grittiness because they've had to overcome the barriers of being you know physically disadvantaged whereas the old the older kids who get the intake they're you know they're what's called you know almost like big kid lazy kid they kind of get away with it because they don't have to develop the skills it's kind of like a double-edged sword where you know on the one hand you've got the group that come in who you really need to stretch and take them beyond their capabilities and on the other hand you've got the group who are kind of left out and so what we're trying to do is to try and not not leave out as many as we have in the past mm. so that you've got more opportunity to see actually who is going to emerge given you know a relative set of circumstances so um yeah it's i mean it's an interesting interesting challenge and you've also got the challenge of increasing the volume of participants and not uh, diluting the quality of, of the operation yeah exactly yeah. So yeah, that's a, that's a, that's also a challenge. That's an ongoing ongoing one that we I'm not saying we've got everything right as far as that's concerned. So we're, we're working on ways in which we can be more effective as far as that's concerned. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I think I think coaches play a huge role in that, especially like for for both the big kid and the 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 late developer. You know, the the way you 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 send your messages to those kids. Uh, I think that's crucial for them to. You know, the big kid's got to know that it's not always going to be this easy and the little kid's got to know that, you know, if he grinds away and chips away, that uh, good things will happen. Couldn't agree with you more. I mean, the coach is essential as far as I'm concerned. And this is this has probably been, this is why I do what I do and this is my kind of lifelong passion. Uh, you know, I, I'm a talent coach myself and my journey, you know, I, I haven't got aspirations to be, say, a national coach. I just want to be the absolute best talent coach I can be and it's yeah. a, you know, it's an ongoing kind of journey that, that I'm, I'm on. And, and what I try and do as well is impass on that information or stuff I, I learn and with others to sort of help them make that sort of development as well. And, I, and it's it's a really difficult job. I mean, I, I, that's the frustration I have is people don't understand how challenging it is. Mm. I mean, back in the day in the Eastern Bloc, I'm led to believe that they, they used to pay the kind of uh, talent coach in the clubs more money than the national coach. And their rationale was that, you know, the national coach's job's easier. You know, you just put everybody in the same colour shirt and off you go. Whereas the guys in yeah. the clubs are the ones doing all the hard Absolutely. work. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I totally buy that idea. I mean, I, I think they're, and I say this a lot when I'm running kind of workshops and seminars, I say that, you know, the talent coach is the guy who you've never heard of or the, or the girl you've never heard of. Um, but then... If you if you research it and and I was fortunate enough to speak to a number of kind of Olympians and you know kind of champions in their in their own fields and one of the things they always said is they they always said oh if it wasn't for such and such yeah, um, exactly. and it, when they were like thirteen or fourteen they wouldn't have arrived where they were so for me I'm thinking to myself you know these people are really important to our system and yet. When you then look at sports um, training offer, or you look at the education that that talent coach gets, you even look at the resources provided for coaches working in this environment, and it just doesn't stack up. So we're kind of leaving it to chance, and more often than not, what we end up doing is spending a lot of time and money, kind of fixing or developing the kind of elite player rather than doing the development work beforehand. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's quite often um, a bit too late in in that in that situation. Either that or, or it's just very inefficient. I mean, you spend an inordinate amount, you know, kind of developing a movement pattern in somebody that could have been done so much earlier, you know, yeah. before that movement pattern, be, the, the wrong movement pattern became ingrained. Um, so I just think it's not a... I mean, some people see it the other way around. They think that it's actually inefficient to do it earlier. I have this debate with uh, Dr. Ross Tucker quite a lot. Um, and, you know, he thinks it... He just looks at it purely economically and goes, well, if you're spending a load of money on kids, you know, only a small proportion are going to make it. Well, the way I look at it is, yeah, but it means that you can save a lot of time, effort and money with that player later on down the track, which means you can be doing much more high-performance stuff with them. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but it's the way of the world, isn't it? People just look at the return on investment and they go, okay, so 5,000 kids of which, let's say, 2 or 3% are going to make it. Why do we spend a lot of money on that? Why don't we just see what emerges and make it a little bit better when it gets there? I just see that as a, what I call a retrofit model of talent development. You know, you, I think the job should be to prepare the kids for the next stage rather than let them get there and then try and make them better for that stage. It just doesn't seem the right way to do it for me. Yeah, yeah, and it's almost like you're maybe setting them up for failure if you're if you not getting those basic, like you say, movement patterns sorted early. Mm, absolutely, and then of course, not just the physical or the technical side; it's the mental, the, the psychological yeah, the whole, side. Whole they, yeah, they get into the, they get to that that sort of higher level, and they can't they can't cope, and it's just purely because they haven't had the preparation. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, and that that then leads to what well, sounds like your second full time job. Are you getting two salaries for that? The the, the retention side of things. 
Yeah, that'd be nice. Uh, yeah, emails too. Uh, yeah, no, um, I, I, it, no, it's yeah, it's it's an interesting challenge. To be fair, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on, um, and there's a number of different areas. I mean, I did I mention I'm doing sevens as well? I just, oh, I just, just thought I'd throw that in. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, um, it, the retention side's an interesting one. We we did quite a lot of research into this, and we were looking at kind of you know what is a kind of sixteen to twenty five year old, twenty four year old player. What are they looking for from their kind of sports experience? And I mean, some of the things that we've identified are quite interesting. But one in particular was that you know how strong the kind of social connection with the game is, um, and that's a real strength. But the problem we have is when they reach that kind of eighteen, they just just assume that they're just going to all filter into adult rugby. And the vast majority were saying to us, well. It's great, you know, but I'm playing with a, a load of guys who are my dad's age, and they're nice guys, but it's not the same as it was playing with my mates. Mm. So we're looking at all sorts of different ways in which we can, look, you know, create sort of competitive opportunities where the players can play, you know, with their friendship group for longer and therefore sort of allow the transition into adult rugby to be more natural. Yeah, yeah and what, what happens on the bottom of a rock in uh, those situations a bit different than what would happen with their mates, no doubt. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Um, so one of the, I, I, I browse on your website, um, the, the talent coach, um, quite quite regularly, and one of the things you talk a lot about is the difference between talent identification and talent development. Is that your your pushing your your model with the RFU is is a talent development model over a long period of time, whereas a lot of people think it's just going out to a rugby park and picking. The superstars, and and that's your that's how you develop players. Is that is that what what you're looking at? Uh, entirely, um, and it goes back to the point I was making earlier. If you go out there and you do essentially a talent ID model, for me, I think there's a there's two or three things that are play there. Um, one is essentially when you go through that selection process, you're actually deselecting the majority, mm. and if you don't get it right, then You've said to the other group, you're not as good. Yeah. So there's a kind of, um, you know, what, uh, there's a concept called the stereotype threat, where essentially people live up to uh, the the kind of stereotype that they are allocated towards. Like uh, an example would be um, uh, women drivers, for instance. Well, statistically, whenever they do stats, they t- it turns out that women are actually when they do tests, women are actually worse drivers than men. I'm going to get a lot of hate mail for this. Um, <laughs> I'll forward but, it to you. <laughs> um, but. Uh, it's only because when they discover it, it's only because they know that they're under they've got a stereotype of being worse drivers they're not actually worse drivers it's just that when they're under a test scenario because they know that they actually have the challenge of not being uh, of not being a bad driver they actually yeah. perform worse yeah, so okay. this this happens in the same scenario as well where kids who are sort of deselected then kind of think i've not been given um I'm clearly not as good as the other people. That becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Now, the problem is, is that if you get it wrong, so let's say you make a bet on a child at 13 or 14 or 15, pre-maturation, you know, it's pretty difficult to do this. I mean, it's no better than a coin flip, really, in terms of how often you get it right and wrong. Um, then, you know, you, you've then basically, you've kind of left the others to their own devices. And if you're lucky, they might come back and they might be better. But the problem is, it's really attritious. What most of those kids do is find something else. So they go and yeah. find another sport, they go and yeah. find something else to do, and they see if they can you know ply their wares elsewhere and well i don't think certainly in the world in the world i live in i don't think we've got enough players we've got a lot but we haven't got enough i don't think to be able to just cast a load aside on the basis that we've got a few wrong and we've got a few right so if you go down the talent development route um and you look at it over a period of time and you then 
you're giving people a better experience, so therefore you're going to retain more and actually you're going to give them an enhanced experience as a player and make players better. The ones that you do get right, you get right more often. Mm. Um, and actually, more often than not, through that three or four year or two or three year period, the vast majority, the cream kind of rises to the top by itself. So you get talent identification as a byproduct of the development process rather Absolutely. than the other way around. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And so. So if, if, you, if you've got some advice to give to some coaches who might be involved in, you know, selecting a representative side or, you know, selecting a school side or something like that, how, how do we move away from that obsession with size in, in talent identification? Like, size is obviously important in, in a collision game like rugby, but, um, you know, how, what, what's some advice you'd give to coaches if they were selecting a team tomorrow? Well, one of the things that we work on as far as talent development is concerned, so in our environments, we've, what, what we've done is we've decoupled uh, our environment, uh, talent development environments from competition. Now, that doesn't mean they don't like play games and stuff. You know, obviously they do, and, and yep. games are a, a core part of the way we do the development process anyway. But we're not developing them for the needs of a game at the weekend. So yep. club coaches, they've got a match to play, so they've got to get them ready. Schools coaches have got a match to play, they've got to get them ready. And so their focus tends to be somewhere else, and that's entirely you know, fine. There's no problem with that. But there needs to be space as well for pure and simple player development um, based on those generic needs. So we certainly pre-maturation avoid actually looking at position-specific skills at all. We're looking to you know, develop a whole player. Um, in all aspects, because what we know is that although a 14-year-old might be six foot tall and therefore, you know, look like they should be a second row, mm. by the time they're 25 or 24, they may not have grown anymore and they're probably a relatively small centre by yeah. then. But they haven't developed the skills of a centre because they've yeah, been in the absolutely. second row. So we want to look, and what we're finding as well is at the elite level, the vast majority of the, or a significant number of the um of the players playing, uh, you know, kind of, say, for the England side, weren't playing in the same position when they were in adolescence. Mm. They've actually become a different a different player. Um, so, like, Tom Youngs is a good example. He was a centre all the way through yeah. his childhood and only converted to hooker relatively late. So, um, you know, what we're saying is, is that actually nowadays the way the game is going, you know, you, you kind of want um, all of the skills of a rugby player um, and then you can specialise a lot later. Yeah, absolutely. You see, you see that a hooker needs to be an extra back row, or he needs to be he or she. But in, in sorry, I didn't really That's answer right. your question. In answer to the question, um, going back, what advice would I have for those coaches? Would be to try and mix that up, so to ensure that you've got the the balance between doing stuff for the needs of the competitive opportunity that you're going to have at the weekend and they're also doing stuff that's purely developmental based on everybody, everybody there and also you know trying almost to certainly with this adolescent player is to you know move away from the focus entirely on right you play here you play here you play here and actually genuinely mixing up where where people play um, I mean, in a utopian world, I would encourage, um, you know, more coaches to get together and say, you know what, this week, why don't we, we're not going to play 15 aside, we'll play a different version, you know, we'll play a load of 10 aside with different rules and those sorts of things to really challenge players in different ways and have different players playing in different positions. But, you know, sometimes uh, I'm accused of having a few too many wacky ideas. So I'm, I'm realistic that that might not happen everywhere. Yeah, yeah. No, but you raise a good point that, you know, especially pre-maturation, having a 
a hundred meter field and fifteen aside with rolling malls and those kind of things is probably not not the direction we want to take. No, not really. I mean, like you say, I, I think you've got to make the game you've got to make the game kind of fit the the developmental. You know, it's got to be developmentally appropriate for the player and. Uh, you know, as an adult, you know, whenever I talk about sevens is interesting. You know, there's quite a lot of people who, who get, you know, go, oh, God, sevens, oh, no, it's not for yeah, me because yeah. the pitch is too big and there's too much like hard work running up and down that field. Well, we do exactly the same thing with 13-year-olds. So I don't understand what the why why it seems in, inappropriate for, uh, you know, what seems inappropriate for an adult should be appropriate for a 13-year-old. We're, we're too quick, I think, to try and get to the adult game because we yeah. want to see the adult game played by children whereas in actual fact they'd be much better off playing tens for a longer longer period yeah right okay um all right so let, let's talk a bit more about um like practice design and 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 pedagogy if you will what mm-hmm. what are what are some of the common mistakes you're you're seeing coaches make uh when it comes to the sessions that they're running um Wow, God, we we could be here a long time. We need part two, three, and four. Um, so, some of the mistakes or the, the errors I have. Well, first and foremost, I don't. One of the things I don't see enough of is yeah. is is what I call selling the why. Okay. Um, which is kind of fra- framing the purpose or framing the, uh, you know, the, the nature of the activity and and kind of what its focus is. So, um, I see a lot of coaches say what they're going to do mm-hmm. so they're very clear you know they get a board out and they say this is what we're going to do but i don't hear them say why yeah and and that's critical and it's critical for a number of reasons um one is uh firstly player engagement you know if they understand that you're doing this or that what you're doing is is for them to develop this particular aspect first and foremost they're immediately more engaged because they understand it's for them mm. secondly um you can also get really strong buy-in to uh, particular forms of training that you know might that might not normally want to go into so for instance like an example um if the grouping agree for example that what we're going to work on is something that's going to help them deal with like the pressure of competition they might decide to you know you might be able to explain to them that we're going to do something that has quite significant consequence attached to um you know to to say you know either winning or losing or not achieving a particular goal that they describe for themselves and in doing that you get you know you might get them bought into the idea of you know some consequence based pressure training which brings about a performance outcome that they wouldn't otherwise buy into they might just see it as oh you're just you just create you're just punishing us yeah. well actually if you sell the why it's not punishment. It's part of the process of becoming better, and so that's probably one of the big ones for me is that kind of whole, the, that kind of explanation and framing of the of the session and getting that kind of athlete buy in. Yeah, and some accountability as well for for, mm. for actions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, in that probably leads me to my next question. Do Do you think profession or pastime of coaching rugby has it is it changing fast enough in your opinion? Like, or are we still are we still somewhat stuck in the 80s with how we were coached, um, you know, when we were kids and that's been passed on to future coaches? It's really hard to say. Um, I think I, what I'm generally seeing um, is I think a lot of people with a lot of desire to uh, to improve mm-hmm. as, a, as a general rule. And when you talk about the profession, I think certainly there's a number of people who are extremely committed. I'm always impressed by by rugby coaches and how committed they are. Yeah. Um, 
However, I'm also sometimes quite surprised as well. So, for instance, I quite often we're doing a session with a group of coaches, and I'll you know just ask them some questions like you know have you read say the talent code or have you read um, you know uh, the sports gene or something along those lines, mm-hmm. and and very few hands go up. Yeah. So it suggests to me that it's quite a, you know, the audience is pretty practical. They're very into learning and you know, very, very much into doing, you know, but not so keen on the kind of research to develop themselves, you know, to taking on new concepts and learning new ways of doing things. Yeah. So as a result, I do think that there's still a, a way to go. Um, now, as a, but as a general rule, I think um, I, you know, there's definitely a, a, a real desire and a hunger for kind of more information and for more knowledge and to do things in a better way. Um, but I do also think that if you, if I looked at it probably over, over the, the generic kind of environment that there, there's a lot of, a lot of, you know, probably less than optimal, uh, activity taking place because the vast majority of our coaches are dads who, you know, go along with their sons and get involved as volunteers and, you know, and they do their best, but they don't always know the right thing to do and they don't always know the wrong thing to do necessarily. So it, it's, a, it's a difficult one, you know, um, but I do think there's, you know, if I, I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's looking good. It's looking better. I'm definitely picking up some good vibes from the from the kind of industry, if you like. Um, it just there's just some, you know. I think we've always got to we're always going to be it's always going to be a piece of work that we've got to continue to continue yeah, to, yeah. to drive. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, there's such a wealth of content out there too. Often you can you can get lost in all of it as well. And I think what a lot of people uh, will do they'll go for that silver bullet as well. They'll jump onto YouTube and they'll 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 type in rucking drill and that's going to be the drill that's going to going to make their their team be dominant at the breakdown. I think it, there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah, and, and I think governing bodies are guilty. I mean, not mm. just you know, not just rugby governing bodies. You know, I think all the governing bodies I work with is not being good enough at modelling what good looks like. Yeah, yeah. And it's pretty difficult to do because actually it's it's quite it's quite subtle and people don't realise the skill uh, involved in, in high quality coaching. Kind of everyone thinks they can do it. This is the the thing about coaching, everybody thinks they can be a great coach, but actually the skill of being a great coach is, wow, I mean, it's um, it's, it's really something to behold. So um, I, you know, I think one of the things that we need to be better at is kind of really making it clear what good looks like so that people can kind of almost understand where they are against that. You know, you almost need like a, I joke about this a lot, but you almost need like a karate belt system. Uh, I mean, like levels, like level one, level two, level three, level four, just too broad, too big. You almost need a, you know, like a, you need to be able to be like a, 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 a black belt triple dan coach yeah, right. so people can kind of understand, wow, that's mm. a real expert. They really know what they're talking about, you know? Yeah, especially with the, the the way that level three has kind of evolved. The old level three was a technical level three that you could do in a, in a weekend, whereas the, the current level three is, is way more complex than that, and the two just can't be compared. Absolutely. And and nowadays, you know, a, a level three is the equivalent of a degree. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty much. And, you know, it, it, it takes quite a bit of work. Some of the stuff that comes out from our level three coaches is pretty impressive in terms of the, you know, the research pieces of work that they've done. So, you know, but the problem you've got, of course, is that's a relatively small number that get to that, get to that level. Yeah. So a big part of my job is to say, right, how can we make a level two coach a way better level two coach? Because for some of them, level three is beyond their reach. Yeah, and they don't want it either. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Okay, so what about a session that you you run? How what what's it going to look like if someone's kind of watching a uh, a session that you're doing? What's it going to look like? What are they going to see and hear? Depends, really. Depends who I'm co- who I'm coaching. Um, I mean, I do. I do little ones on Sundays or Friday nights. I do Friday night cricket in the summer with the under nines. And I do on a Sunday morning, I do the under eights. They're the real coaching challenges right there. When you've got 30 under under eights uh, with, with hockey sticks or cricket bats and they're swinging them around. So, um, but what you see in that environment will be quite different in terms of what you'll see. What you will see though, is a lot of similarity. So for example, you'll see themes and things. So you'll, you'll definitely see a lot of games. Mm. You'll definitely see a lot of reps. Everyone's getting a lot of goes. Yep. Um, so really small groups, very little cues, hardly any cues if at all possible, you know, within the realms of safety. Um, but as much as possible, it's about, and, and what you'll also see is, is competition. So games and you'll see, uh, challenges and you'll see, uh, you hear me with kids, particularly, I, I use a lot of video game language. Yeah. So we have things like power ups and, you know, we have lives and we have, um, uh, I'll say, oh, yeah, okay, well, you're ready for level two or you're ready for level three and it'll nice. go up in little notches. And it, I'm just using a kind of constraints-led approach, but in their language, it's going up a level and, you know, they're always looking for that extra challenge um, to go up to the next stage oh, and, cool. and stretch them in a different way. And to be honest, I kind of do the same with 16 and 17-year-olds, yeah. um, but with probably some slightly different language. Um, but what you'll see there, again, is, you know, a lot of, re- a lot of reps, a lot of, a lot of opportunities to, uh, to fail, um, and I'm, I'm big on that in terms of, you know, framing the environment. So one of the things I'm talking about in my environment a lot is, is failure and, and actually, you know, encouraging them to kind of stretch themselves beyond their capabilities. The interesting thing I found with working with, um, a lot of adolescents is how unprepared to fail they are, how, how they want to, they want to look good in front of their peers. Mm. Um, they, they, you know, normally it's because they want to, be selected and in my environment it's like well you're not i'm not selecting you here i'm here to help you develop so this is where you're free you know but interestingly they're so conditioned by their environments to not get things wrong that it's very very difficult for them to unshackle themselves so i'm kind of starting to use some like reverse language in the one-to-ones i have with them you know i have like quick micro one-to-ones and i'll be saying to them yeah see what you did there That, that was good that's tidy but you could do that you know you could do that in your sleep what you've come here for is to do things that you can't do in your sleep. So you and I are going to have conversations when you do things that you know you can do. Um, but you, you know, you'll get like nothing but kind of positivity from me when you do things that are outside of your comfort zone, even if you get them wrong. And an example of that would be, you know, one of the things I do is when we're giving like points and stuff, quite often I'll shout out a point for somebody who's done something wrong. They've just done something. They've tried something out and it's not worked. And I shout out point, point for jenny or point for rob or whatever and then afterwards when we do a bit of a re you know review i'll say do you remember me giving that point out to to rob and they'll say yeah why did i give that point and then some of the clued up ones will be like well he had a go at that go yeah exactly and then you're just trying to subtly get that message out there around how safe it is to fail but it's an interesting challenge it's one i continuously fight with yeah and i think uh that's so ingrained like you say it comes from parents it comes from school it comes from society so if we as coaches can make that that environment a mistake-friendly environment, and you know we, we lead that environment, I think that's crucial. Girl, girls, particularly, I mean, girls are girls are very, very failure averse. But interestingly, boys are too, but in a different way. And this is something that people may not may not observe. What boys tend to do is they go the other way, so they'll do like outlandish skills, 
um, and and in so doing, go look. You know, I'm trying. I'm trying these things out, but they're not going to do the. They're never going to do the basics and fail at those because they know they'd be exposed. So what they tend to do is like crazy skills that they would never probably do in a game just to make it look like they've embraced the, the culture. Yeah. You have to really get underneath that with them. You have yeah. to really stretch them and really pressurize them and they're actually going, now what would you genuinely do? If, I, if we're now going to do some scenario here where if you get this wrong, right, you're going to, yeah, you know, you might have some sort of significant consequence. What is it you're going to do here? And they go, that's all right. Do that. Do that really, really well. And so it's an interesting dynamic with boys sometimes, particularly adolescent boys who are full of bravado, mm. that actually they're so failure-averse that they actually pretend to fail when they're not actually failing, if you know yeah. what I mean. They do things they know they can't do. Yeah. Well, I teach at an all-boys school, so daily I'm surrounded by almost 800 <laughs> of them. <laughs> so I know exactly what you're talking about. You know that inside out. Yeah, absolutely. All right, cool. Um, what You mentioned um, positions... And how you don't focus on that uh, with with the the talent groups that you're working with. Uh, wh- wh- when when do you bring in position specific work with uh, with the athletes that you're working with? Well, uh, it's very difficult to be broad about that because it's very deve- it's very dependent on the individual. Mm. So obviously, somebody who's matured relatively early, and you've got then you know some pretty clear markers as to you know what their kind of predicted predicted sort of height is likely to be their size weight etc etc you can probably begin the process then of some position specificity but for others that are maturing later you've just got to delay it so as a general rule you know the general rule is as late as possible right without you know compromising their future development um however i think if you are if if the if the base of skills is is broad enough and strong enough then um, I, I think it's easier then to. It, it's almost like the you know the old concept of the fundamentals. Um, you know, what are the fundamental core skills of your sport, and how can somebody become really, really highly proficient in those? And then once you've got that, you've got essentially a foundational base from which you can build a, a you know a kind of a, a position specific structure on top of. Mm. I think what we often find though is, um, and I was actually talking to one of our academy managers the other night about a young player. Who is a giant? A gen, you know, at the age of seventeen, is a giant. You know, he's probably about six foot eight, six foot ten. He's, you know, what is it? About one hundred and ten odd kilos, something along those lines. And, you know, but the problem is he hasn't got a body and a physique to transport that giant frame around with any level of athleticism. Yeah. Now, somebody like that, you kind of have to take out the competitive environment altogether and you have to let them develop and you have to let them build. Otherwise, they're either going to break or they're just never going to develop as effectively as they could do. Mm. Now, in his environment, we can do that because we can take him out of the picture. But in another scenario, if he didn't have that kind of support, he'd be being played every single week in a single position, probably not developing a full range of athletic capabilities. Yeah. And as a result, he'd be a suboptimal athlete. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's very much horses for courses. Yeah, yeah, he'd be... Pass it, pass it to the big kid, and just make him run all day, and that, that's yeah. all—that's his rugby experience. Absolutely right. A lot of other kids hanging off his legs. Yeah, and pushing a few props around every now and then too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, what kind of contact time do the academy coaches have with their athletes? How often are they seeing them? It depends. So it, it, as the further up the stages you go, it, it's, uh, it moves towards kind of like a weekly model and then you're beginning to start to see them on more than that. It's then definitely, you know, by you know, two or three times a week. Okay. Um, uh, certainly at the younger ages, you know, um, the sort of 13 and 14 year olds, 
Um, we're either doing monthly sessions, but that's definitely not enough. We, we want to move towards weekly sessions, but you know that's kind of an, an evolving model for us. The vast majority of our academy programs, we've got them on a weekly basis, um, but we're always balancing that off against you know the challenges and the demands they've got with other other activities and what have you. And is that um, in season or is it kind of overlap with the off season as well? No, we're generally doing it in season. Yeah. With a thirteen or fourteen year old, they're doing. They should be doing three or four sports. Yeah, Therefore, you don't want to get yeah. into the summer too much and yeah, clash absolutely. with the sports. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. All right. Um, well, we we always uh, we always always finish the show off with uh, four questions about rugby players and coaches. So, when you were when you were growing up as a kid, who was your favourite player that, that got you into the game or got you excited about rugby? Well, do you know, uh, the last time we did this, um, I kind of gave you a couple of players, but since then there's a, probably a few others that have kind of popped up that I that uh, came to mind. Right. And one of them is actually doing uh, a, a really great... Um, he's doing a piece of ambassadorial work for us, helping us get um, adults back into the game who've stopped playing. Okay. Um, and, and that's Lewis Moody. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, he's great. I mean, he's like, he's come back to the, you know, he works in a grassroots club and he's got involved with doing a load of stuff and he's really, you know, got behind our campaign to try and bring people back to the game. Um, and, you know, you couldn't have a better ambassador, really passionate about it, done loads of stuff for us, helping people, people come back. He actually took a... Uh, a load of guys from some of these clubs out to to, to a hospitality day at the uh, at the recent uh, England Australia game, which we won't talk about. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, did a great job for us, and he's helping us really do that. But as a player, I mean, he kind of epitomised, I think, kind of one of the you know, what it's great to be English, really. You know, and he's like he's absolutely dedicated. You know, put himself on the line. You know, they called him Mad Dog. You know, yeah, because absolutely. he was just a hundred percent dedicated to what he was doing, and he wanted to be an ultimate professional. And you know, just listening to him talk about his experiences, you know, he, he was the ultimate professional. Mm-hmm. You know, in that transition period where the game went from being kind of an amateur into an early stages of professionalism, but he definitely took professionalism to a, a new level. So you know, um, he's definitely one of That's one right. of my kind of heroes. He, he won a World Cup too, which we don't talk about either on this show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's something we don't talk about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, great. He's not long out of the game too, so that's uh, that, that's great for your cause for the for the um, retention side of things. Absolutely, yeah. And who who did you mention? Was it Jeremy Gascott? Was your, your that's other one the, last time? That would be the other one. Yeah, yeah, because he's. Um, you know, we used to talk about him. He had that kind of grace, that kind of he used to make it look effortless. And I always yeah, think this absolutely. about great athletes. You know, you, one of the ways you can spot them is it almost looks like they're not trying, but they do it so well with such an economy of effort. And yet, you know, it, it, there's something about that. They always have that little bit of extra time. They always have that little bit of something else. You know, they, they do the unexpected things. And Guska was definitely in that bracket for me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, he, he, he was great. He was one of the greats for sure. Um, okay, and what about what about current players? Who are you, who are you liking? Um, uh, Anthony Watson is a very exciting prospect. Yeah, he, he reminds me a lot of Jason Robinson. Yeah, he's got that kind of ability to kind of go from flat out to like you know directly lateral and then straight again at flat out and yeah. he's just you know he's got that kind of that kind of elusive uh capability that is you know you don't you don't see very often so he's a pretty exciting prospect mm-hmm. um you know and, and then there's there's a few others out there as well um you know who are kind of maybe a little bit more on the periphery who haven't kind of you know fully fully kind of 
broken in there yet. Um, I mean, I suppose the other one who's a really, you know, up there for me, for me as well is, is George Ford. I just love watching him play. Um, I love his I love his creativity and his vision, and I love the way he, you know, he kind of makes things tick. So, uh, yeah, they're two guys certainly in the England setup who who really impressed me. Um, and then on the on the kind of international stage, I mean, Israel Folau is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> every time he gets the ball, unreal, eh? I just uh, every time he gets the ball, I'm just kind of you know uh, fearful because it looks like he's just going to make he just gets through every single time or he gets at least half half a breakthrough. The amount of players he brings in is just unbelievable. Yeah, and under the high ball as well, it's uh, oh. it's it's almost a guarantee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's it's unbelievable to watch. Um, yeah, okay. And uh, so, what about coaches? Who who are some of the the higher profile coaches that you that you admire and like? The 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 guy who I, I mean, I'm a, probably a little bit biased. I did a uh, training course um, with a guy who who went on to be he's kind of become my kind of mentor. A guy called Mark Bennett, mm-hmm. and and uh, and on that training course, I did the training course with Mike Ford, who's. Okay. He was the England defence coach, and he's now the head coach at Bath. And Bath have had a real renaissance. You know, they've really come back from from being a fairly kind of average outfit. And he's he's got them challenging every single year. And and Mike's a great guy, and he's done a number of like coach development sessions for me. And he's never afraid to be really honest and kind of explain some of his issues and the challenges he's faced through his career. And he's been brilliant in terms of just being open and honest. And he's still like that now. And he's quite open to you know explain on the journey he's on. And I just love watching the way his teams play. They play with abandon. They play without fear. They they do things that are just not the norm whatsoever. And and this there's a group of players there who are coming through who are just you know different different animals altogether. So Mike Ford's definitely one of those. That's great. All right. And what about um, what about some coaches who are chipping away in the trenches who deserve a mention? Uh, there's loads of those around. Um, you know, you could kind of go on. I, one I just think that's probably worth mentioning that many people definitely wouldn't have heard of is is Anastasia Long. Yeah. Um, the story behind her is she teaches at a co- uh, school in South London. I forget the name of it now, but went into this school. They didn't do rugby. Um, and then just she didn't do rugby, but just decided to start doing rugby because of a stimulus from one of our our, uh, our community rugby coaches trying to get rugby into schools. And awesome. she went on a couple of courses and started. And she took this school through to the kind of final of the of the, the under fifteen schools Vars competition. You know, from absolutely nowhere. And these kids played this brand of rugby like you'd never seen. Just street kids just Fantastic. playing this amazing game. And they they ended up kind of I think they lost in the I think it might be the semi final the final to to Whitgift, which is one of the sort of traditional powerhouse schools but it's only by like a couple of points wow. and they and they were like the the real heroes it's like someone should make a movie out of it it was like uh it's like a like a coach carter type film so um yeah she's definitely one to uh to try and look for uh, you know coming through the ranks that's great no, I, I spent three years teaching in uh the east end of london and uh it's uh it's extremely challenging to say the least so i'm sure she <laughs> faced many of the same challenges but She's done a way better job than I did uh, by the sounds of that, so that's that's great. Yeah, brilliant. All right. Well, um, before before we let you go, we, we, what's the best way some people can kind of see what you're up to, uh, social media wise, what you what you're putting out, and what you what you're talking about? So uh, yeah, so um, you can get me at the um, my website's called the the Talent Equation, which is www. Uh, thetalentequation.co.uk so I, I blog on there on a pretty on a bit of an infrequent basis at the moment because I'm, I'm pretty busy with, with World Cup Act stuff but um, uh, yeah I'm on there and so you can you know all my all the stuff I put on there is just 
pretty regular. Uh, I'm fairly active on Twitter. You definitely get a lot more out of me on Twitter at the moment. So I'm at Stu underscore arm. Um, and then also uh, there's a Facebook page where I'm putting stuff up there on a regular basis, and that's called The Talent Equation as well. So basically you know, search for those things and you'll find stuff coming out. All right, fantastic. Well, thanks again for uh, for doing take two. Uh, really appreciate you finding the time a second time. And, uh, you know, it's just a, a testament to your passion uh, for, for rugby and development of sports in general. And I uh, really appreciate you coming on the show again. Absolute pleasure, Andy. I'm, I'm really looking forward to sort of seeing how the podcast develops. And I think it'll be really useful for all the rugby coaches out there. I'll definitely promote it to some of our guys. Uh, beauty. Thanks very much. I really appreciate that. No worries. All right, cheers, Stuart. Cheers, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review via iTunes and keep listening for the next episode. You can also follow us on Twitter at RugbyCoachSCNR or via the website at TheRugbyCoachesCorner.com dot com until next time keep sharing ideas to make the game better